Thank you, God, for the brothers and sisters who've come here tonight to participate in corporate worship. We love you, God, and we want to sit at your feet. We want to be near you and be with other believers in one voice. We proclaim that you are the Holy of Holies, the I Am. Lord, as Jesse prayed earlier, we ask for your spirit to just blow into this room, Lord, and fill every, uh, fill us with your presence. Through your spirit, give us a deeper understanding of the scripture tonight. Give us insight on Doug's message. And Lord, our hearts are as hard as Pharaoh's hearts, Pharaoh's heart. And um, we just ask that also through your spirit that our heart would be softened tonight and that we would turn toward you. And in our offering our prayers tonight, Lord, for our city, our country, and our body, um, we, we submit them to you, Lord, as an incense and offering to you. For our country, Lord, um, we just pray that the peace, um, the humility of believers will point to Jesus Christ as our true hope and not an elected official or a world system. For our city, Lord, we pray for um, love, safety, and empowerment for each child here in Knoxville. And um, the, um, we ask for final funding to come through for the Change Center, Lord, that um, those doors of that place would just swing open wide in 2017. We thank you for the efforts of Dan Holbrook and Lawrence Tulloch um, on this project and just the faithfulness of uh, Bruce Charles, who serves as CFO on the board for the Change Center. Thank you, God. And for our body, Lord, um, may we encourage one another and carry each other's burdens. Um, your word is truth and light, Lord, and um, we just pray a blessing on each teacher of the word here at All Souls. Lizzie, Noel, Mark, David, Taryn, our children's ministry, each Sunday school teacher, Lord, and Melanie. Um, Douglas, who brings the word to our middle school and high school age students. Um, and for Doug, Lord, who listens to you uh, for a word about this message each week. <clears throat> we pray for um, just refreshment and relaxation for Doug and Sandy as they will be going on vacation on Tuesday. Um, travel mercies, um, safety in his... Uh, ocean swimming that Doug will be doing next week. We pray for our brother Bill Lee for spiritual rest as he awaits a donor and a transplant. We celebrate the newest member of All Souls, little Robert Royal. He's here tonight. I don't even know if he's double digits age yet. Um, Lord, and in the same breath, um, that we celebrate and give you joy. We are heartbroken for our brother and sisters who are unable to conceive. And 
you ask us to pray the desires of our heart, Lord, and it is our desire that you would place babies in these wombs, that um, mothers who are unable to conceive. Um, there are many brothers and sisters who are caring for aging parents, Lord. Um, they are, they're being obedient to you and honoring their parents. We just pray for steadfast endurance for them. We are grateful for each member of our body who is nominated to the shepherding team, and we are grateful also for the gift um, of their story, of their faith story that they shared with that committee. Um, we love them. Um, we dearly appreciate their offer of service to the body in this way. Um, we are also grateful for Dan and Aaron and the others who served on the nominating committee, um, Nate, Brenda, and Ashley. Lord, in um, one voice, the voice that we praise you and we petition you, um, we pray these things uh, in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Tonight's reading is from Genesis 1, verse 27 through 28, and Colossians 1, 15 through 20. So, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. In Colossians, the preeminence of Christ. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn, from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is the word of the Lord. On January 12th, 2010, a powerful earthquake killed as many as 300,000 people in Haiti. Billions of dollars poured in from the outside world. 10,000 NGOs worked to try to bring relief. But a year later, little had improved. A million people remained homeless. Most of the rubble had yet to be cleared and a majority of Haitians lacked permanent jobs. 
Now, why did so much money and so much effort and so many organizations accomplish so little? Well, one reason is because Haiti lacks a stable and well-functioning government. The government was not strong enough to provide good roads and education and communication and basic sanitation. And without those basic structures in place, there was no way to get aid to where workers needed it. And government corruption only made matters worse. And this illustrates a a biblical principle that I think needs to be restated these days. And that is that God gives government as one of his gifts to help people flourish. Romans 13 verse 4 says that government is God's servant for your good. And, of course, Christians uh, disagree on the size of government and the priorities of government, but this is a Christian principle that I, I think we can all agree on. Now, the current election season has left a bad taste in nearly everyone's mouth. Uh, politics has become a dirty word. Political engagement of any kind seems mean-spirited and ineffective, And so we step back and ask the question, how should we faithfully engage this political process? And the first week, I said I'll give you three words that can help guide us. In the first week, we considered the word Jesus. and We we said, you know, when when all of this is over on November 9th, Jesus is still going to be Lord of history. Uh, We can trust him then as we can trust him now. We talked about that it's a wonderful thing to love your country, but if that love goes into idolatry and you look to your country to keep you safe and secure, then that is a a spiritual problem that will create tremendous anxiety in a time like this. Then last week, we we used the word love. We we said this is a time of great acrimony and bitterness, and and there's an entire collapse of civility in, in our public discourse, and so One of the ways that Christians mark uh, themselves as belonging to Christ is the way we talk to each other, especially when we disagree, the way we talk to our neighbors, especially when we disagree, and we talked about love. Tonight, I want to talk about the word redemption, and I I want to step back and and introduce this subject by by going and taking a look at the biblical story in three acts. And the first act, of course, is creation. We can put that up there. And what I want to do is we look at this big story of all the Bible. I want to step back and I want to ask, what does it say about how we should engage the world politically? The the biblical drama opens with creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. Darkness was over the face of the deep. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So God brings order out of chaos. He creates this flourishing uh, community of, of animals and plants and eventually people. He, he, and he brings, he brings all of that out of chaos and it functions in a beautiful, natural, interrelated way. And then on the last day, as we already read this verse, he creates, uh, if you go ahead and put the other one up, Bruce, he creates human beings. And this is a slightly different translation. Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the different aspects of creation. And so one of the things that you see, even in the the first day of creation, is that God has given human beings uh, a command to rule, to to govern, to to, to oversee, to steward 
his creation, to care for God's creation. And, and these first human beings are to, to oversee the systems and structures of this natural world in a way that it flourishes. They're to govern. But towards what end? Well, one of the things that you see in, uh, in the Garden of Eden is that everyone is enjoying shalom, that wonderful Hebrew word that means peace, wholeness, life, fullness. Uh, people are at peace with God. They're at peace with one another. They're at peace with the planet. And so the, the, the initial vision for governing, for ruling, is to oversee the community in such a way that people enjoy shalom. The purpose of politics is shalom-making. Now, the second act of the biblical drama, of course, is the fall. And Adam and Eve uh, break one rule of God's kingdom. They, they eat from the tree of, of good and evil. Uh, they were designed to rule under him, but they rebel. And, of course, sin enters the picture now. And we read about this from Genesis 3 all the way to Genesis 11. Sin shatters shalom. Sin distorts relationships. The man and the woman were living in harmony in Genesis 1 and 2. In Genesis 3, the man is, is oppressing the woman. Sin, sin creates uh, a, a whole mess with the whole work because the garden is filled with weeds now and it's very difficult to, to do the work. And as Act 2 unfolds, shalom disintegrates. Violence bursts in in chapter 4. Cain and Abel uh, kill one another. By the time we get to chapter 6, the narrator says, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And by the time we get to chapter 11, you have Babel, and you have an entire governmental system set up in opposition to God. Now, sin, of course, profoundly affects the human heart, makes it greedy, jealous, envious, power-driven. And when you mix that with the ruling function, you get all the horrors of history. And this is something that as Christians, when we think about politics, we've got to keep a robust view of the fall in mind. The fall is part of a Christian explanation and a Christian worldview. The fall tells us why there's a Stalin, why there's a Hitler, why politics is so messy, why it's so often driven by violence and envy and ego and greed. It's because of the fall. We should not be surprised. And as a footnote, many people think one of the reasons democracy works is because it has the most honest understanding of the fall. And it's kind of set up to mitigate it. Now that leads us to the, the third act, the longest act. It's still playing. And Rocky, if I could just have a little bit more... Christ redeems everything in Act 3. And uh, let's just look at two texts. We just read one of them. We won't read it again, the Colossians 1. This beautiful text talks about Christ ruling over all powers and authorities. And, and a couple weeks ago, we looked at how those words in the Greek described systems and structures that govern society. Christ rules over all of them. And he's in the process of reconciling to himself all things. So even though the world is fallen and plunged into sin, Christ, because of the cross, is redeeming it. He's restoring it. He is, he is taking those broken systems and structures and drawing them back into himself and to his purposes. Now, we know that that won't happen in full until Christ returns, but that is what he's doing now. Now, the next verse uh, describes something similar. Uh, from 1 Corinthians, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, 
after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him, who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. So that's, that's a Christian view of history, that one of the things that Christ is doing is bringing all things back under subjection to the Father through him. And all things includes all the structures and systems of life, including the political structures. Now again, we understand that this won't happen fully until Christ has come and finished, uh, finished the job. But are there any scriptures that suggest that we should uh, believe that this is happening in our life today? That this is something actually that Christ is doing even as we speak? Oh, there are. Uh, the Lord's Prayer, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So this isn't all just saying, hey, wait here, save souls, everything's going down, one day it'll be all right. Jesus says, no, I want you to pray that the things I care about, the heavenly reality, the kingdom of heaven, would even now break into our cities. Now, there's another uh, answer to that. And we're asking the question, okay, I get this idea that Christ is redeeming the world, but do I really expect that he's going to do anything about 2016? And another verse that we can go to is in Luke 4, verse 18, where Jesus is preaching his inaugural sermon, and he's giving essentially a vision, a political vision. Uh, and he says in Luke 4, 18... This is what's going to happen when the kingdom comes. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of the sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So Jesus, when he establishes the kingdom of God, says, let me tell you what it's going to look like. Yeah, it's going to, it's going to affect hearts. It's going to save souls. But, but, but he talks about all the brokenness of poverty and injustice and uh, the, the vulnerable and how they're all to be made whole as his kingdom comes in. So, Christ is redeeming all things. He's reconciling all the broken, fallen systems of the world to himself. And that includes the government. And so we as Christians are to... Seek the peace of the city, as Jesse shared that verse earlier. Seek the shalom of the city. We are supposed to do that through every way we can. And one of the ways that Christians can seek the peace of their community is by engaging in the political process, like Daniel did, like Esther did, and like many others have done it as well. Now, what's the goal of that engagement? When you go to the poll, if you choose to go to the poll, if you choose to run for office, if you choose to write a letter to the editor, if you choose to lobby for a law, as Christians, what is the goal? And this is where I think it gets practical and where this differentiates us from, from maybe people who don't have a similar worldview. The goal is not that the world gets better for you. That's not a Christian vision for politics. Christians don't ask, is the world better four years is, is, am I better off than I was four years ago? That's not a Christian approach to politics. The Christian approach to politics is, are we experiencing more shalom? Is the community flourishing? Are the most vulnerable members 
of the community flourishing. Uh, uh, are, are, we, are we all doing better? That's a Christian approach to politics. The Christian vision for politics is shalom. Chris Woodhall, a former city councilman, put it like this. He said, the goal of Christian politics is to build a place for everybody, a real place, a community with social equity, a community where everyone has economic access, a community that is sound and viable. Now, when we get involved in the political process, do we think that's going to usher in the kingdom of God? No. That's when Christians have really made a mess of it, when they thought that. What we're doing is being salt and light. We're being incarnational. We, we are living prophetically within the political structures to remind those structures and to point them to a higher vision of shalom, of justice. That's why we engage the political process. Now, it's easy these days to feel like government never really does anything. And I've heard this in a number of conversations. You know, it's all just a big waste of time. The parties can't agree on the most basic decisions. Even when they do agree, they kick it down the road until somebody else has to make a hard decision. And so it's easy to just check out and say, you know, it doesn't matter anyway. Well, it does matter. Government, whether it's small or big, whether you're liberal or conservative, government has enormous power to set the conditions under which shalom flourishes. And we've got to recognize that, particularly in America. Governments make laws. Laws shape our lives. Governments make laws about marriage and abortion and immigration and drugs and war and climate and guns and prison. Governments organize our economics. They answer questions like, what forms of taxation will we use? Should we guarantee that a worker will have enough to live on? Uh, what safety net should we provide for people who do not or cannot work? All those questions governments answer through law. Governments create social policies. They answer questions like, how should we educate our kids? And how do we provide training for the workforce? And how do we make sure all people are valued, no matter what their economic, racial, or ethnic background? And how many and what types of immigrants should be permitted to enter our country? Governments do all of that. They have tremendous power. Now, I've heard this many times. I heard it this week. Uh, a, a good friend just said, you know, my life isn't any different now than it was eight years ago. It's not going to be any different eight years from now. It doesn't really matter. My response uh, to that is twofold. One is, it actually does, you just can't tell. Because the changes that take place in our democracy take place over a very long period of time. Let me give you an illustration. Lost a whole bunch of my retirement after the recession. Why? Because of some laws that were made 15 years before the recession. Some of you can't get jobs today because of what happened in the recession. And some of that is a result of laws that were passed in the 90s. Now, you might not know that, but that's what's happening at a macro level. Now, the other thing I'd say to my friend who said, well, it doesn't really matter. My life's not changed by any of this. I'd say, then you are probably not poor. Uh, you probably have resources. You probably have a parent or grandparent who might bail you out if you get into trouble. You probably have some skills and talents that are marketable because the decisions that are made in uh, Nashville and Washington uh, really do affect you if you're vulnerable. And, I, and I'm not arguing what the right decision is. I'm just saying it really matters. Now, let me give you a little illustration to, uh, to, to try to flesh this out. If we could put a picture up 
This is uh, uh, one of the kids that we take swimming. She's part of our summer program. I'm going to call her Brianna. That's not her real name. And this year, uh, we've been able to raise some funds and make it possible for seven of our Emerald kids to swim year-round, which is a very expensive sport, but through a lot of generous people, we've been able to, to do it. Now, one of the things we've done, we've been able to hire someone to drive uh, Brianna and her friend to practice. Uh, because uh, like so many sports, swimming is a very labor-intensive, parent-intensive sport. Now, Brianna's parents both work the night shift and do not, as far as I know, have, have, uh, have transportation. They take the bus. So you realize, by the way, that that immediately rules out lots of, lots of options for Brianna. So uh, Laura Tuberville, who was a member of our church uh, until she moved to Nashville, uh, was driving Brianna to, to, to swimming, and Brianna kept going like this. And she says, honey, what's going on? And Brianna says, I got a headache. And every night she gets in the car, she says, I've got a headache. Well, finally, she asks some questions. Finally, she figures out, Brianna can't see the board. And, and so she says, well, well um, there's got to be something we can do about this. So she makes some calls. She takes her over to a clinic behind Vine. Uh, she gets an eye exam. Yep, she's got some problems. She needs glasses. How do you get glasses? You have to go to an optometrist to get a prescription so that you can go back to the clinic so that you can get glasses. Well, as it turns out, there actually are resources for her out there, if you can somehow pull them all together, for Brianna to get her glasses. But Brianna's mom and dad work at night, and they don't have a car. And so for them to figure out how to get Brianna to the optometrist, which is way out west, and not miss work, and all that crazy stuff, uh, means that two months later, Brianna uh, is still has a headache. Now, laws, government, has something to do with that. Because the government makes decisions, the people in Nashville and other places, they make decisions about how she's supposed to get glasses and who's supposed to pay for that and uh, what kind of schools Brianna's parents grow up in and uh, what kind of law affects Brianna's housing and how far Brianna lives from the bus line and and, and what kind of food she eats at, at school, and, and when and how Brianna's parents vote, and all that kind of stuff. So what I'm, what I'm trying to say is, if you just think government doesn't matter, beloved, it's just not true. It matters. It really, really matters. And it matters especially if you're poor. Now, good Christians can entirely disagree on the best way to get Brianna glasses, there's all sorts of legitimate argument about that. There's no verse in the Bible that says this is how Brianna should get glasses. I think there's a lot of verses in the Bible that says in a healthy community, eight-year-old girls don't have headaches because they can't see the board. And that's something that a Christian should care about when they vote. Well... How do we engage the political process? And originally I had forgotten that I'll be on vacation next week. And by the way, Daryl Arnold will be preaching. And he told me to tell you that he has a meeting going right up till 5. And he's going to get here at 5.15. And he, and he, quote, he said, I'm not late because I'm black. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> so he, he wanted to tell you that. He is going to be late next week, uh, and, and he has a good reason. He wanted you to know that. So, so originally this was going to be part of the last sermon, but I'm going to just cram it all into the last five minutes. So how can we engage the political process? Uh, number one, vote. Vote for the candidate, the laws, the party you believe will best work for Shalom. This election, a lot of people are asking, do I have to vote? I don't know. Um, voting is important. It's a tool. It's only one tool that you, have to, you, you can use to engage the political process. You're free to use it however you deem best. And if you don't want to use it, don't use it. Second, run. Run for office, especially local office. Run for the school board. Run for county commission. Uh, do what Ginger did. Run for something over your, your neighborhood. Run for mayor. And run on a platform of shalom. And by the way, if Christians decide too messy, too dirty, too hard, I might get hurt, I'm not going to, none of us are going to run for office. Well, don't complain. (laughs) We'll get what what we deserve. Third, lobby. There may be an issue that you're very passionate about. Lobby for legislation that will work for Shalom. Karen Easter, you may not know her. Lovely member of our church. The reason why you don't know her is she has a son with a mental illness and a Two parents who are severely ill, and she works 40 hours a week at the UT hospital, and so she's stretched so thin that she can't come to church. But she loves us, and she's part of us. She had a horrible experience with her son that showed her a real injustice in a particular law having to do with health care. And so she has become passionate about lobbying for a change to that law. She, she's joined a, a, a nonprofit organization. She's visited Nashville. She's written editorials. Uh, she's gone and seen different leaders in the community. She helped me write an article last year for the paper on this. She's working for Shalom. She's engaging the political process. Now, lastly, um, let's talk about prayer. And, and, and don't kind of check out on me yet. Because this is kind of one, I, I know, we get that. Make sure you name the president in the pastoral prayer. That's important, and we do a good job of that. But I think there's something much bigger here, and I just want to play it out for just a second. 1 Timothy 2, 1 to 2. First of all then, Paul says to Timothy, who's planning a church in Ephesus, first of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Okay, first thing I want you to notice, first of all, Pray. And as I was looking at a commentary today, there's a way in the Greek that you say that that indicates that he means first in priority. Now that is really interesting. In a book written to a church about how to flourish in a pagan polytheistic culture, the first chapter's introduction, the first thing he says the church is supposed to do is pray. He says the most important thing you can do is pray. And then he uses four words, supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgiving. They're plural, which indicates you ought to be doing this all the time. This ought to be happening all the time. And they're in the present tense. It ought to be an ongoing action. And what are we to pray for? Kings, the government, the systems and structures to do what? To help us lead a peaceful and quiet life. In other words, we're to pray for shalom. We're to pray for people to enjoy shalom. 
for the government to create the conditions for peace and security. We're to pray for justice. So one of the most important ministries of the local church is intercession for justice. To intercede means the action of pleading on someone's behalf. Luke 18, 7, Will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Intercessory prayer is our responsibility to stand in the gap on the behalf of the poor, the vulnerable, the broken, the hopeless, the lost, and to pray that God would transform what is wrong. And Scripture specifically tells us to intercede for social justice issues. Isaiah 58, 6, Is this not the fast that I choose, to lose the bonds of wickedness, to let the oppressed go free, to share your bread with the hungry, to bring the homeless poor into your house? Proverbs 31.8, speak up for those who can't speak for themselves. Protect the rights of the helpless. Speak out and pronounce a sentence of justice. Defend the cause of the wretched and the poor. And when you pray for social justice, it means praying for all the people involved, the people who experience injustice. The people who are poor, unemployed, rural, remote areas, vulnerable in any way, threatened in any way. The people who cause injustice. The people who have the power to change the situation, the local community, the church agencies and community organizations who lobby for more just policies and actions. Now, I've been thinking a lot about what this might look at our church because we're a church that practices consensual orthodoxy. And one of the things that that means is we hold firmly to the core of the creed. We encourage everyone to take a firm belief in what they believe on issues outside of the creed, but we don't take positions on those issues outside of the creed as a church. We encourage you all to take them individually. Now, that can make it tricky to pray for social justice because, as you're no doubt aware, as we go through this tonight, we don't all agree on what justice looks like. We don't all agree on the best way to care for Brianna's glasses. We don't all agree on these issues. But many of us are very passionate about particular social justice causes. And so one of the things that I would urge us to do is to begin creating prayer circles where we plead and intercede for the issues that God has put on our heart, for for the vulnerable members of our community that our hearts are breaking for. And, And remember this, my heart happens to break for Brianna. Your heart doesn't have to. Your heart might break for somebody else another vulnerable member of our community. So one of the things that I would love to see all souls do is to become more prayerful over social justice and for cells to pop up, prayer cells, where we could just passionately intercede for these these issues. Now, last thought, um, and then we'll close. I... I've tried in this series to be as non-biased as I possibly can. I'm trying to be neutral. I'm trying to lay out broad biblical principles and let you apply them. But you know that's hard to do. And I, of course I haven't done it flawlessly. I do have biases. Um, One of the things I, I suspect you might be thinking is, Doug, you talked an awful lot about the poor tonight as being central to a Christian political vision. So are you a liberal? 
And what I would say is that I, would, I intentionally did speak a lot about the poor when describing a Christian political vision. Because if you go through the Torah, the law, and you go through the prophets, you go through the Gospels, and many of the epistles, you will see that one of the things Christ cares for, one of the things God's people care for most is caring for the poor. And so I would submit to you that any earnest Christian vision for politics makes a priority for caring for the most vulnerable members of the community. I would also be earnest to say that if you are a true conservative or a true liberal, you both care about that. I think that's important to acknowledge. I think there are good Christians on both sides of that question that care for Brianna. I want to say this, and I'm going on vacation. Don't email me. I'll call. <laughs> I'm turning my phone off. Um, I don't see how you can be a Christian to be a libertarian. Now, I could be wrong. I haven't really studied it. But every defense that I've heard of being a libertarian is rooted in Ayn Rand and is, seems to me very much about my rights and my needs and letting people fend for themselves. And, beloved, that's not Christian. Now, I may have totally missed it, and please, I'm teasing about the email thing. Email me, whatever you want. We'll have lunch, whatever. If I would love to hear a compelling biblical vision for libertarianism. I just haven't yet. So don't just knee-jerk, I'm a libertarian because Gary Johnson's cool and I hate the two candidates. Think about what you're doing. A Christian political vision seeks the shalom of all, the flourishing of everyone, and the well-being of the most vulnerable members of the community. When you engage in politics, remember that. Let's pray.